Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing HBO's Watchmen, the new sequel series to the beloved comic by writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons. Set in an alternate history version of America in 2019, it explores racism, generational trauma and law enforcement through the lens of superhero fiction. Uh, created by showrunner Damon Lindelof, who you may know from shows like The Leftovers and Lost. So Regina King stars as Detective Angela Abar, leading an ensemble drama with a lot to say about conspiracy theories and revisionist history. This show is obviously very hot right now. It is being very deeply analysed by comics fans and by TV critics and is very much sort of a peak TV prestige drama phenomenon. Um, one of those primetime HBO dramas. Uh, Morgan and I have both been watching it each week. I've been recapping it over at The Daily Dot. It is literally my job to be paying attention to this show. Um, Morgan, remind me, have you actually read the comic or not? I have not, no. We have an interesting balance here then, because um, I have, of course, read the comic several times. You might have heard, good comic. The original was designed as like a reaction to the phenomenon of superhero comics. It came out in the mid-80s and it kind of caused a revolution in the genre. You know, it, it was meant to satirise and really be very critical of the idea of kind of adults taking superheroes seriously and it uses them in a very sort of dark way without it being like, oh, here's lots of sex and violence, which was the actual impact of the comic in the long run. Like it immediately led to several years of like gritty superhero comics. But the actual point is sort of like, isn't it a bit futile for people to be dressing up in masks and beating people up rather than handling actual structural issues? And I will not recap the comic, but it sort of involves various masked crime fighters, almost none of whom have superpowers. Like there's one character who has superpowers whose name is Dr. Manhattan, who is basically godlike. And all the others are just like people with serious emotional problems who put on themed costumes and beat up criminals. And that is very much kind of the theme of the new TV show, which takes place like 30 years later. It's in the present day. And we've got this alternate... Uh, history where obviously there's this kind of cultural phenomenon of mass crime fighters but also it's a world where the internet and like cell phones and computers are not part of the landscape like that isn't a thing and also America's politics are kind of shifted slightly so it's still like uh, racism and law enforcement are central themes but it's like slightly different our world not like dystopian or utopian just different like the current president is Robert Redford and has been for like 30 years and there's a lot of like weird secret societies and conspiracies and what have you so there is a lot to unpack here I will be excited to hear if there are any listeners who have not watched the show and are listening. You're welcome. But we will, of course, be doing a lot of spoilers here. Um, and yeah, for future reference, we are discussing up to episode seven, which is when we're recording this. Yeah, I was really curious about this show as someone who hasn't read the comic. It was something I always kind of meant to read when I was a teenager. I think a lot of people I knew went through a phase of being really into Watchmen, which I think is probably a very common phenomenon for like nerdy teenagers but I never got around to it and so although I have some generic cultural knowledge of some of the characters and the general idea of the comic I don't have any specific knowledge of it but I am a huge fan of Damon Lindelof's television output I was a huge fan of Lost when it was on it was I think it was the first tv show that I got really obsessively into and have a sort of conflicted relationship with because as people will know it ended on a very sour note. And 
I think was a very uneven show, but when it was good, it was really, really, really good. And then he was away from TV for a long time, and then a few years ago came back and did this HBO show, The Leftovers, which people who follow me on Twitter will probably be aware that I love. I think it's one of the best things that's been on TV in a long time. And that was watched by like five people, but the five people who watched it were really obsessed with, myself included. (laughs) This is a show beloved by TV critics. (laughs) Yes, like crazily beloved. And the premise of that, it's based on a Tom Parada novel. And the idea is that 2% of the population on this specific day just vanish. And there's no explanation for why this happens. So it's very much about trauma and like large social trauma and all these people trying to deal with this inexplicable situation that they just don't really have an understanding of because presumably these people are dead, but it's not like they've seen them die or can bury them. And so the entire show, again, is about trauma and how people deal with it in different ways and cults and all this stuff. So you see a lot of echoes of those themes in this show, which is also very much about trauma, but he's dealing with them in a different way. And this is much plottier than that show, which really has no plot at all. And that show, like Lost, was would focus on individual characters for specific episodes. And he does that to a certain degree here too. Regina King, who plays the main detective, Angela, is definitely the main character of this show. But you'll have occasional episodes that sort of focus primarily on one of the other characters. So Gene Smart plays an FBI agent who is the daughter of one of the original heroes from like the 40s and she has her own episode and uh, Tim Blake Nelson plays one of the other detectives who was a teenager when this big attack in New York happened and he witnessed it and has been traumatized ever since and you get one episode from his point of view and one of the great things about the show I think is that it has definitely a central sort of crazy plot and a very compelling central character and also can then do these side trips with these other people who are also unbelievably compelling and it doesn't feel like you're wasting time at all because everything about it is just so well executed. I think Damon Lindelof is an unbelievably gifted storyteller. He's incredibly tortured as a person and so whenever he gives interviews, he's just like, I don't know, maybe it's horrible. It's like, well, actually, this show's pretty good Um, and obviously has a kind of mixed output, but he's really, really good at TV and I think you see that a lot in this And from the first two episodes, even though it was kind of confusing and I didn't know everything that was going on, I felt very much like, oh, this is what watching TV is supposed to feel like. Like a lot of television now is released all at once where we have these kind of experimental formats like something like Fleabag, which I think was amazing, but it doesn't feel like television in the same way to me that sort of old school TV did. And this, while feeling very new in certain ways, also has a bit of a throwback feel of like, There are a lot of interesting characters and there's definitely a plot and like something is happening. And you're meant to watch it week by week rather than like marathoning. It is designed to watch an episode and then there is a very, clearly very carefully marketed, but there is a very, uh, you know, clear sort of cycle of people analysing it and sort of recapping and discussing it. And it is a real sort of water cooler show. And I'm hoping it does just conclude with episode nine, the finale, and they don't go for another season. I love the idea of a self-contained story. (laughs) That seems unlikely to me. So get ready (laughs) for more. I think he has said he's sort of like, this is it. But given his penchant for saying nothing I do is good, and also the fact that this has been a huge hit, 
And that Gene Smart in an interview was like, the end's so great. I can't wait to do more, hopefully. And like HBO is totally going to be desperate for more of this. I obviously have no idea what will happen, but um, it seems likely that yeah. there will be more of this. Especially since it's very much sort of eclipsed the ambivalent ending of Game of Thrones for them because obviously yes. they're very keen for to have shows which are going to go on for a long period of time and have an intensive fandom and I assume probably merchandise of some kind and uh, this show could theoretically be that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious to see how it ends. Like, I think I'm... I have never watched Lindelof's other work. I've seen the pilot episode of Lost like 15 years ago and the pilot episode of The Leftovers, which I thought was interesting, but didn't keep continue watching. Like I hear the show really sort of picks up in season two, but um, my Lindelof knowledge is minimal. And um, when the show was kind of initially being promoted before it began, I was very doubtful. So the way it was sort of being described by Lindelof specifically beforehand made it sound very politically dubious um, because there's a lot of concepts which he was kind of introducing as sort of buzzword topics and in interviews that fit together in a way that makes more sense in the show, but it takes like five episodes for them to really gel. And kind of the central part of that is the idea of kind of the, the masked cops, which is something that's introduced right at the beginning of the first episode. So it's like you have obviously this kind of subculture of people who are masked vigilantes, which is illegal in the canon of Watchmen already. And then the idea is that the show takes place in Tulsa and right in the beginning of the first episode, kind of famously it opens with the Tulsa massacre in the 1920s. And kind of that is the the starting point really throwing you into the idea of America's sort of violent racist history. And then you get to the present day and supposedly sort of things are better now. And the idea is that the police force in Tulsa are legally obliged to wear masks, which in the case of the uniformed cops is just like a yellow mask. And in the case of the detectives involves like a whole superhero persona. And that's for their own protection. And it's hard to explain that in like a coherent way in a promotional interview without spoiling your show. And I came away from this just being like, this sounds incredibly problematic and a really weird way of handling police brutality and racism in America. And it's really unclear to me how they're handling the timeline where it's like, oh, you've got like decades and decades where Nixon is president and then America just switches over to elect Robert Redford as a liberal president who also stays for decades. And like he introduces reparations for some people who are the descendants of victims of racism in Tulsa. And also there's the fact that there's no technology and they haven't really explained that yet. And honestly, I I kind of suspect there's not going to be a satisfactory explanation for that and they're just doing it so they don't have to include the internet and cell phones, which we have seen in other stuff. Um, But yeah, that stuff does get kind of a more satisfying explanation in the show, but it takes a while to kind of get through. And I'm not really going to have a solid opinion on that until I've seen all nine episodes because there's some parts of the show which I am just so into politically and I think they are exploring such interesting ideas in a really intelligent and thoughtful way. It really sort of encourages the audience to think about the malleability of history and the way we sort of perceive things that we think of as historical fact but are actually shaped by current political biases and that kind of thing, which is a topic which I find very interesting And I found very interesting in things like Black Sails and the fandom around Captain America. Like this show really reminds me of sort of Captain America fandom in a lot of ways. But also like, I feel like there's also possibilities that this could go in some some dubious directions as it kind of winds up. I've not read many Lindelof uh, interviews, but I keep seeing kind of annoyed people who don't like the show posting screen caps from his interviews where he just seems to not really 
get like the real ramifications of the story, which like I think Morgan would probably disagree with because she loves Damon Lindelof and thinks he's a genius. But from these quotes, it kind of makes it seem like he doesn't understand that cops just wear masks in the real world because he's having to market this this show where it's like, what if police could hide their faces? And it's like, they can, they do. This isn't like a really out there concept. But at the moment, kind of, we've got to the point where they've revealed these multi-layered sort of political conspiracies, which are sort of tying groups like the KKK into the US government and law enforcement, which obviously is very much reflective of reality. And kind of also discussing the ways that like Black Americans have been sort of, I guess, disenfranchised by popular culture, sort of the depictions of people are warped by racist movies and sort of media is designed in a certain way to give people certain opinions. So like, you know, right at the beginning of the first episode during the Tulsa massacre scene, we see like a black and white movie of a sheriff who is based on Bass Reeves, a real real guy. Um, And it's sort of this like heroic Zorro depiction and it becomes sort of the origin story for this little boy who survives the massacre and has this sort of fictionalized historical idol that he looks up to as a masked avenger and kind of showing like oh yes in america we can have what's good and right and like justice will prevail and the story is about him kind of realizing that isn't true and the whole of episode six is like a flashback to the 1940s where he joins the police force very quickly realizes that the police force is very racist and then becomes one of the main sort of masked vigilantes from the original comic. Like he is the guy who started the concept of superheroes in the Watchmen timeline. And then in the present day, his granddaughter, Angela Abar, her kind of personal journey very much mirrors that because, you know, she is living in what essentially amounts to the Obama era. Like she is aware of racism in the world around her, obviously, because she's like a black woman living in Tulsa. And there are problems in the world, but kind of the general surface level cultural assumptions are that life is quote unquote better and there's like a relatively liberal president and kind of things like decisions are being made to make the world better. But she very quickly discovers that her police department is actually much more racist than she thought and she can't trust people who are around her and the government is like much more corrupt than she ever thought. And it really did make me think about how the difference between telling a story that's about the Trump era where you're like really focusing on the concept of Trump and the idea of just making a show that's kind of about American politics in 2019 in general, which this is because it's about the realization that just because you have an Obama-like president, it doesn't change like hundreds of years worth of really politically and emotionally traumatizing history. Yeah. I mean, I didn't feel particularly concerned about the political stuff from the beginning, the way you did. I think, I mean, we talked about this a bit at the time that you watched the first two episodes and were really skeptical. And I watched the first one and was like, great, I'm in. Seems good. Yeah, basically what happened is like, I wrote my initial review based on the first four episodes and was like, I liked a lot of it, but I was very doubtful. Um, But it was also sort of a time constraints thing where like I had to, (laughs) I had to review it really fast. It's like sometimes as a critic, there's a lot of circumstantial stuff around the way you form your opinion. (laughs) And I think if I'd watched this over the course of weeks and also if I'd had time to watch all six episodes, I would have given it a much more positive review. And after watching five and six and then kind of going back, I was like, there's so much more for me to sort of dig into here. And five and six are also like the best episodes we've seen so far, in my opinion. Like they are both really great kind of single character episodes, like Morgan said. So like one is the one with Looking Glass, Tim Blake Nelson, and the other one is about the backstory of Hooded Justice and is largely in black and white. Right. 
But I think, like, from that first episode where you're seeing all this stuff with the cops, it felt to me like the show was, from the get-go, very ambivalent about the political situation with the police force. And then the sort of layers are peeled away and away and away from that. And Angela goes on this journey sort of realizing, as you say, that a lot of her assumptions about her life and profession and her professional relationships were not correct. And I think the show is really intelligent about all of those things. And certainly when you hear the first sort of like one line pitch of the idea that, you know, the main character is this black woman and she's a cop and the people who the cops are kind of oppressing are these poor white racists. You would think like, oh, oh no. But I just feel that the execution is so intelligent on basically every level that I never felt at any point so far watching the show, like strong skepticism about their understanding of the material. And I also think it's important to note that this isn't like the brainchild of one individual person. When Lindelof was doing all his interviews for The Leftovers, he was very, very assiduous about talking about the fact that it was a collaborative, the writing was a collaborative process, and they had this big, great writer's room. And I think in general, showrunners of television are better today than they were, you know, five or 10 years ago about talking about that because there's just so much more TV now than there used to be that people have a better understanding of how the TV creation process works. And it's not like one person writes an entire TV show for the most part. But even in that context, it was notable that he was making such a big fuss of giving credit to the other writers. And there are a lot of writers on this show who are clearly making significant contributions. Um, The sixth episode, which is the one about Hooded Justice, the flashback episode, was co-written by Cord Jefferson, who's a Black writer who also has written on The Good Place, which is just, like, amazing. When you see his CV, it's like, the stuff he's writing on is like, this guy really, he's got it all. (laughs) He is, he is good. (laughs) He also, like, started his career, I think, as a writer for Gawker, which is, because I remember him, or maybe Billfold, it was one of those sites uh, and because I remember him from that, and it's just wild to me to have watched this sort of career trajectory. And so the press for these things always focuses on the showrunner. And obviously, you know, this is definitely Damon Lindelof's show and his, you know, vision. But it's clear to me that a lot of other people are contributing to this yeah, for as sure. well. I, I think this is something that TV networks need to kind of get on top of more in sort of the early promotional period because um something that like I think happens quite a lot is that the full writing team will just like kind of not be announced or will kind of be gradually announced as the show progresses I guess because it's just not really considered particularly relevant information but because kind of the social media conversation around Watchmen is so intense and especially because it's a show that is basically about black people and has a white showrunner there's so many more kind of like layers to the decision to have Damon Lindelof foregrounded and you're definitely right that he is like trying to make it as clear as possible that this is a collaboration and we've had more interviews recently with the kind of the other writers 
But like when it was first coming out, when I was writing my initial review, the only source I had for whether it had a diverse writer's room was like an Instagram post he made like a year before the show premiered because HBO hadn't kind of released a list of who was making it. And it's sort of like, for a lot of TV critics, it's like you want to know where the creators of this show are coming from, which is very relevant in this case. And it seems like it was like the writer's room in general was like a 50-50 split between like black and white writers. And there was like a 50-50 split with men and women. And it's like maybe not necessarily the lead writers in every episode, but it's sort of like writer's assistants and the people who are contributing to like the Bible of the show and like consultants and that sort of thing. They have a very diverse writer's room by like American TV standards, basically. Yes. I mean, that's definitely, those numbers are not typical at all, which is sad, but true. And I also feel like it's interesting to think about the way that we talk about the writing and race and other forms of identity now. I think there's been a lot of progress in terms of talking about representation and the need to hire a diverse range of people, although Hollywood has not actually moved very far in that area. And this applies to fiction as well, almost more so. But I think that there is an attitude in a way that is now sort of common that people who are not of a certain identity group should not be telling stories that are about that identity group. And obviously, it's important to be sort of responsible. And television is a great in a way because it allows you to have so many different people contributing to storytelling. And obviously, for this show, if he'd had an exclusively white writer's room, that would be totally absurd. But I'm not of the opinion that if you don't belong to a particular group, you should not be allowed to write about those people. It's all about the approach and the sort of level of responsibility and sensitivity and sort of awareness. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that in a larger sense because you don't want to like restrict everyone to their own group. But in the specific sense of this show, which begins the first episode with the Tulsa massacre and is telling a story that is very directly about sort of racial injustice in the justice system, kind of got to have a lot of black people in the writer's room. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I totally agree. This is my point is that one of the benefits of television is that you can do that. But I think what's kind of remarkable about the show in a way is that you have a white writer whose previous work has not been particularly great on race. Um, there was a recent essay by Emily Nussbaum about the show where she talks about his interesting progression on this front. She points out that Lost had a very diverse cast and when it first came on, it was kind of this like positive element of it was that it had this wide range of people. But by the end of the show, it was basically all about the white men. The show had sort of wound up that way. And then in The Leftovers, it started out all about white people. And then in the second season, he added this black family. One of the actors was Regina King, who's the lead in this show. And then by the third season, it was kind of more about the white people again. And that he clearly thought very deeply about what he wanted this show to be about and that was race and so far I mean we haven't seen the last two episodes so maybe it'll all blow up it feels very effective and again he's clearly you know collaborating with other people and that's really important but when someone decides to tackle something like this and it actually works I'm always just very impressed and like good for him HBO wanted him to make a show and he they wanted him to do Watchmen and he could have done anything he wanted to with it and wound up telling the story. 
Yeah, I think the majority opinion before the show began was like, it's very hard to imagine <laughs> this being good. And like the angle it's taken is just so, it's so interesting. And also the fact that it's not really commenting on superhero fiction at all is a really smart choice that I think perhaps is not even really on most people's minds because we're all just so keen to discuss sort of the character work and the politics. But I think it would have been like a bad decision to try and make it a commentary on contemporary superhero movies and TV because that kind of subgenre is already digesting itself at such a rapid rate. And also, obviously, that's not like where Damon Lindelof comes from as a creator. Like, I don't know much about him, but like, it's not like he is a superhero guy. He is a kind of elaborate puzzle box political TV drama guy. And with the original comic, obviously that had like a ton of stuff to say about kind of American politics and law enforcement, but it also was like responding to the decades of superhero fiction. And in this case, the superhero stuff is actually pretty minimal. It's like it's being used as a springboard to discuss history and pop culture and law enforcement. And then kind of the commentary on superhero fiction is happening in other mediums, including just like Marvel and DC. I would argue, though, that that sixth episode, which is about the Hooded Justice character, is the most incisive superhero commentary that we have seen in any oh, for you know, sure. genre. I mean, that in is like, like probably my favorite TV show episode of the year. Unless the OA was still airing in 2019. I can't remember what year, how years work anymore now. But um, yeah, like that episode is stunning. It's just, it's so good. It's just like a self-contained story. It works on like so many different levels. Like I guess on the off chance that there are some listeners who are listening to this podcast lovingly without having seen the show. Hi guys, we love you. It, it kind of happens like along two strands. So it's like the strand of the original comic meets like the strand of the TV show. Um, like I said earlier, it's a black and white 1940s flashback uh, featuring a character named Will Reeves, who we know as a hundred year old man in the present day of the TV show. He is the grandfather of the main character and he is a black man who becomes a cop in New York and very rapidly becomes disillusioned with his co-workers and becomes exposed to uh, an offshoot of the KKK. And when he tries to arrest a racist guy, it kind of provokes his co-workers to uh, attempt to lynch him. They allow him to live. And he kind of runs off with like a noose still around his neck, wearing a hood and with rope in his arms. He bumps into some a couple being mugged in the street and then fights off the criminals. And that is the origin story for a very early superhero who wears a hood and ropes and is called Hooded Justice. In the original comic, um, kind of the whole concept of this superhero is that he was a riff on really early, sort of late late 1930s, early 1940s comics, like superhero comics kind of around the creation of Superman and Batman, where there were a bunch of heroes who had really simple concepts, quite silly looking vintage costumes, and were forgotten and lost to the mists of time. And in the Watchmen timeline, he is the first masked vigilante, and we don't really know anything about him. Like in the comic, we know that he is probably having an affair with Captain Metropolis, who is the head of like the first superhero team in New York, who is much more media friendly, but he never takes off his mask. So we never know who Hidden Justice is. We think he's white because there's a brief scene where he we see like the shape around his eyes behind his hood, but that's it. And in the TV show, they kind of reveal this much more compelling backstory, which is kind of has imagery to do with lynching and the KKK and it gives this incredibly evocative story about a man who desperately believes in the concept of justice and then has that taken away from him 
by discovering that the American justice system is just completely just a front for white supremacy. And then he takes the law into his own hands and becomes a vigilante. And then very quickly, his legacy is taken away from him. So it's like, it just mirrors all these times in history where marginalized people have made this huge cultural impact in some way, whether it's like in a protest movement or in pop culture. And then that is very quickly being shifted over to usually like white or privileged people who are able to manipulate the media and be a more kind of culturally palatable face of that phenomenon. And so he is now just this sort of obscure old man. Um, in like the supplemental materials to the TV show that HBO publishes, apparently we learn that he was given like the media rights to the original superhero team uh, by Captain Metropolis, his ex-boyfriend, um, after Metropolis died. So maybe he is the reason why there was all this sort of like Minutemen merchandise in the show. But for all intents and purposes, he is forgotten by history Everyone assumes that Hooded Justice was white. There is no real examination of what his origin story was. And it's kind of assumed that just like all of the other superheroes in the show, he was just someone who either had like an obsessive desire to beat people up in the name of justice or was an egomaniac who wanted attention. And then finally, there's like this extra layer along with the fact that he's like wearing a mask and wearing makeup to make himself look white under the mask, he's also in the closet because he's having an affair with Captain Metropolis, who is this very self-absorbed, upper-crust white gay man who doesn't really value Hooded Justice at all and uh, kind of screws him over and has no interest in kind of real political change or justice at all. So um, yes, that is an amazing episode. I loved it. There were a couple of great interviews with Court Jefferson going around the the guy who co-wrote the episode yeah. with Lindelof, and he was talking about Batman in the context of this in a way that I thought was really yes, insightful. Yes, I love that quote. Which he points out correctly that there's no reason whatsoever for Batman to exist, right? I mean, the reason would be that like he's just really fucked up and wants to beat people up, but the idea of like a white billionaire needing to put on a mask and go like undercover basically to fight crime is totally absurd, right? Like he's the most powerful person societally that exists. It doesn't make any sense. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. You just pay whoever, right? And the person who would have to put on a mask to achieve anything is the marginalized person, right? And in this context, like black people in America have never you know, had that kind of access. And certainly, you know, in the 1940s, 1920s, when this character is first originating, that completely makes sense. And the number of people I saw sort of reacting to this online with this sort of mind blown sort of reaction, <laughs> it's which like, I as had if too. we hadn't already had, oh really? Okay, because I was just like, as if we hadn't already had these conversations about Batman, but I guess in that case- well, No, not, just... not Batman <laughs> yeah. specifically, but I mean about the episode, oh, right? Yeah. It's not like there haven't been superheroes who are black before, but the idea of like the only superheroes who really should have been black, like there's no, or, you know, other marginalized identities, like there's no, it doesn't make sense for them to have been white at all. It's sort of stupid. It's almost positioning it as like, this is a kind of anarchist DIY way of finding justice, which is of course like the whole concept of superheroes. But characters like Batman and Superman are so like attached to the idea of law enforcement that we're conflating the idea of the law with the idea of moral good. And any kind of intelligent like adult drama should not be doing that. And it's very hard for a lot of kind of habitual TV viewers to 
get their mind around that because we are so used to seeing crime dramas. Like even if you are someone who is relatively clear-eyed about the idea of police corruption and racism, it's still like every single TV show in the entire world practically seems to be about like detectives or like murder investigations or crime in some way. And that is also the whole superhero genre. And most of the time these movies, they are just like mainstream blockbuster entertainment. So there's no kind of real examination of like the complicated intersection between like we should arrest this criminal and the fact that you are just like participating in the carceral state. Yes. And then also what's kind of smart about that episode too is that he's obviously taking out the KKK, which is like a good thing, but he's like murdering lots of people in a way that clearly is messing him up also and really destroys his marriage. And the so it's just this whole sort of morally ambivalent and destructive situation. And the need for him to sort of be pretending to be a white man is really destructive to him as well. And the fact that there is no functional justice system is just bad, right? Like, you can't actually fix that just by killing people, because then that means that you have the weight of that in you. Like, that may be better than just doing nothing, but that's still sort of not preferable to having a system that actually works. But how do you get that system to work? There's no solution. And so I just found that, I mean, the episode is also unbelievably well done in a technical way. It sort of shifts between these memories in a very elegant fashion. And so it has this dreamlike quality while also conveying a lot of information at once. Yeah, this show just has like a really intelligent way of doing flashbacks because obviously flashbacks are an extremely popular trope. And here it's like this episode specifically is sort of visually illustrating literally like the concept of trauma flashbacks, but also kind of the way that your mind latches on to certain things in your memory and prioritizes them and the way that you kind of make thematic narrative links in your own memory to try and make your life make sense. And here we have that and we also have, because we're viewing it through kind of Angela's eyes, we're seeing her kind of connected to her life in the next episode because that one sees her sort of flashback to her childhood and kind of seeing that overlap with the memories she's absorbed from her grandfather. Yes. And in that, in the, the black and white episode about her grandfather, so it's mostly black and white, and then you'll have these occasional moments of colour where he's remembering the trauma he experienced as a young child during this massacre in Oklahoma. And it'll be these like very brief moments. But I struggle to think of an example in a film that more successfully illustrates Yeah, like the moment where you see the bodies trauma. dragging behind the car. Yes. I was just like, this is incredible. It's such a clever and really upsetting and just arresting way of depicting this story like it's just really sensitive it kind of shows how the mind works it illustrates trauma in a way that's very easily digestible to the audience and doesn't kind of fulfill really tired tropes that we've seen before it's just like it's a yeah it's a really well done episode and and the whole show then like that's the most crystallized uh, engagement with that subject but the whole show is about 
generational trauma, right? So this whole family has had this stuff passed down and passed down. And then Angela has had this horrible experience of watching her parents get killed when she was very young, and that messed her up. And that obviously is tied into all kinds of historical ideas and studies of, you know, historical trauma being passed down through generations of black people, which is, you know, an unresolved issue in America today. But that's something that sort of transcends that specific issue. And they do it here in a way that feels both a sort of commentary on history, but is also very particular to these individual people in a way that I think is really smart. And the other characters are also really messed up. So like Lori, who's the Gene Smart character, who's sort of from the original comics, clearly has all these problems from the that stuff in her background the tim blake nelson character who went through this horrible experience when he was a young man you see him in several episodes before his episode and he's just kind of this laconic cop character who clearly is sort of odd but you don't really know what his deal is and then in his episode you find out that he basically is just like a non-functional yeah and it's like incredibly easy for him to hide that because as long as you are putting on a sort of i'm an efficient middle-aged man face if you're like an unmarried guy who lives alone, you can just be unbelievably fucked up in your private life and no one will know because it's not like there's anyone who's going to be intensively reaching out to him emotionally. Right. Which is, once again, another really good episode there. It, it also kind of all ties in really neatly with sort of the recurring themes of the original comic. Like the whole clock situation is obviously a famous image from the comic, which in in those times was sort of the the countdown to nuclear apocalypse. And sort of the idea of time and memory. And in this one, we're getting like increasingly more and more kind of into the science fiction of memory and trauma because, just to be clear, I don't actually know what happens in the next two episodes. I've not watched my screeners yet, so I cannot accidentally spoil anyone. Um, but it kind of seems like uh, the character Lady True, who is sort of this uh, genius billionaire tech person in the story, she and the elderly Will Reeves seem to be doing something to do with like a giant clock, which may be something to do with like generational memory and trauma, or maybe some kind of time machine. We don't really know yet, but like it's clearly leading to that point because we know that Lady True has developed these memory drugs and there's all this like elephant memory imagery around in her house and all this clock stuff going on. The finale of the original comic is kind of infamous, partly because the Zack Snyder movie changed it (laughs) in a way that was just like, you've made this very bad. The film's very bad. We all know the film's bad. But um, the finale of the comic is that um, this wealthy, cliched supervillain character named Ozymandias, aka Adrian Veidt, who in the show is played by Jeremy Irons, he kind of orchestrates a fake apocalypse in order to, in theory, kind of create world peace by forcing people to unite. So he gets like a group of sort of scientists and architects and and, uh, fiction writers and artists to put together sort of a mental blueprint for like a psychedelic trauma, which he generates using this person's psychic brain, which he clones in a lab. And then he builds this sort of fake HP Lovecraft style squid monster, which he just plops down in the middle of Manhattan. And it creates a a kind of psychic blast that kills 3 million people and intentionally traumatizes loads of other people, which kind of includes Looking Glass, the character we see in this show. So it's not even like 
oh, these people are traumatized because a bunch of people died. It's like an intentional effect which was created by this sci-fi conceit. And in the flashback 1940s episode, we also see kind of an early version of that idea where the KKK are creating these sort of mesmeric cinema projectors where they are sort of using them as a ramped up version of propaganda to try and persuade black people in movie theatres to be violent towards each other, to kind of gin up racism. And that is kind of tying into the show's sort of treatment of propaganda and conspiracy theories and all that kind of thing. But yeah, it's like taking a very sort of sci-fi angle to generational trauma as well as the sort of more realistic stuff. Yeah, I think the show does have a good balance of dealing with things in a very low-key, psychologically realistic way. So like the episode with Looking Glass that we've now referenced a few times with Tim Blake Nelson is the most sort of down-to-earth one, I would say, which makes sense because he's really the most normal person in the cast. Like he has no connection to these sort of outsized characters in the way that a lot of the other people do. He really is sort of collateral in this crazy situation. He's just a normal person who's wound up completely fucked up by these events. And so it makes sense that his episode has all these sort of character scenes and there's still plot stuff going on, but you really feel his individual just like fucked upness. It's not that the other characters don't also feel very compelling and sort of psychologically realistic, but you'll get some more outsized psychological or outsized science fiction stuff in some of the other episodes. The Lady True character who's played by Hong Chao is just great. The the performance is fantastic, but she definitely is sort of out there <laughs> as a character. And I think the balance between the psychological realism and the sci-fi is part of what makes the show success so successful because it is while at times very upsetting, also just like very exciting to watch because you know something is going to happen and who knows what that thing might be. So whereas The Leftovers, which I prefer to this, was just like viscerally upsetting all the time, this is also very affecting and thought-provoking, but more fun. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. Uh, Regina King is not playing a particularly funny character but she has great comic timing and obviously it's like a fantastic actress so like she makes that character funny and like I think the one that a lot of people are picking up on is Jean Smart's character Laurie who is it's weird because like she is essentially the comic relief of the show but she is such a dark and like unpleasant character like she is intentionally this sort of embittered bitchy loner who is just mean to everyone but that is kind of intrig- intrinsically funny. And Jean Smart is just excellent in that role. And also there's just stuff like, they just have like weird little notes. Like they have, there's this character who people are calling Lube Man, who I assume is Agent PT, but it's like this skinny guy in like a suit, like lubes himself up and slides into a grate and then we never see him again. And it's like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and like, they just have like visual punchlines and obviously Jeremy Irons' role, which is, like at first it was actually kind of one of my favorite parts of the show because I was just like this is so aggressively strange and silly because the show is really good at kind of combining this really intense emotional and political content with like just acknowledging the silliness of what people are doing as superheroes and like with uh Adrian Veidt he's like trapped in this mysterious castle with like an army of weird obedient clones and the most recent episode saw him 
go to like be taken to court for his like prison crimes in the castle prison where he's like tried by a jury of piglets and it's just really surreal and I think with only two episodes to go now I'm kind of hoping that he doesn't get out or if he does get out it isn't like impactful on the wider story because I think that obviously even though it is a weird and bold move for a tv show to spend five to ten minutes every hour on a character that isn't technically related to the main plot I don't want that character to have any real world effect and I think that is pretty much the point they're trying to make is that he is this really absurd figure who just cares about himself and has this really ridiculous problem of being trapped in like a clone army castle and wearing a purple cape all the time and being like technically okay he's a genius but he also is just the worst and instead of it sort of confirming the idea that he made this huge impact on the world it should be like this guy is actually futile and ridiculous and silly and like real cultural change is being made by people like will reeves yeah that section of the show is sort of confounding to me i mean it's very funny i mean narratively it takes the place of there's a sequence in the book which i guess you've probably read about by now in various recaps but like the book is interspersed with sections from a pirate comic because the idea is that because superheroes are a real thing in the Watchmen timeline uh, superhero fiction really isn't so like old swashbuckler comics are the equivalent and there is this kind of dark pirate comic which keeps kind of appearing throughout the series and you just have like an interlude with the pirate comic and when I first read that read Watchmen I just like skipped every part because I was like I don't care about like this random pirate interlude and I think it's it's very much like a love it or hate it thing because some people are like I, I love the pirate sections I really want to learn more about like whatever the hell it was called and then it's like some people were just like please stop and I think that's kind of the same thing here where we've got this very ostentatious role which just seems like sometimes it's kind of vaguely thematically tying into the story but not really because he is in this completely different world and we don't know what the fuck he's doing there I mean I'm sure they're gonna it'll connect back in some way but uh I mean it's very entertaining Jeremy Irons hamming it up always amusing but uh, it's quite odd. Yeah. Uh, do we have anything else to say? Actually, I have a couple of final thoughts, one of which sort of ties into the Jeremy Irons thing and is what, the other one is sort of going into the reason why we initially both had quite different responses to the show. We're kind of coming at this, obviously, from very different angles. Um, not really in the sense that I'd read the comic, but in the sense that, first of all, you're coming into this with like a preconceived trust in Damon Lindelof's work. I just didn't really have any opinion on Damon Lindelof beforehand. So you were kind of like, I know this guy, I like respect his work. And you're also coming at it from the perspective of someone who predominantly watches good television and like serious <laughs> dramas. Yes. <laughs> and I and I consume and have in the past consumed a vast amount of bad and or silly or middle of the road TV and like a lot of superhero movies. Like I watch every superhero movie that comes out each year almost. I've read like a lot of superhero comics, which you haven't. And I'm kind of embedded in the culture for obvious reasons. And that meant that like a lot of the stuff that we heard going into the show and indeed for the first few episodes, I'm just like digesting that in a completely different way. Because while you're right in saying that really from episode one, the show is very morally ambivalent towards kind of the police protagonists and the kind of conflict between masked cops and this kind of group that is married off the KKK called the 7th Cavalry. Obviously the show is not, look at these cops who are like oppressing these white criminals. It's like not really like that. It is very kind of complicated and it gets more complicated the more you find out, right? But I am so used to seeing kind of stories in this general genre 
that are depicting stuff that is like blatantly should be portrayed as morally ambiguous and it's just being portrayed really st like straightforwardly as like this is fine it's like totally fine to go and beat someone up if they are a witness to a crime or like for a police to be really violent towards people they're arresting or for superheroes to just like murder people all the time or for that to happen and therefore to be like a brief interlude of grief or guilt before we go back to the main storyline because certain types of characters are valued more than others and also I'm used to seeing kind of interviews with creators where they say either oh this story like has different politics and what you're interpreting because like they don't fucking understand politics or people saying oh you have to like read the whole series of this comic before you can really like understand what's going on here and I think this show is like a rare example of me being like actually I will read the whole comic before I find <laughs> out because like I want to know like it seems so clearly like a nine episode self-contained story but at the same time I've like been burned so many times before and like if you're someone who's coming off like the unbelievably stupid and toxic conversations everyone had when like Captain America became a Nazi and like the people were trying to make these like incredibly simplistic arguments about how this was some kind of like cultural commentary and it was like no you've just made like a really tone deaf and bad comic there is a lot of that kind of knocking around in my skull when I'm coming into this. Yeah, I think what was interesting for me with this was, you know, I obviously love The Leftovers. That is not a plotty show, as I said. And the big problem with Lost was the plot, right? I mean, I know you didn't watch it, but everyone I'm, I'm, knows I'm anything about culture I've heard of knows Lost. that. I've heard. Yes. <laughs> and so, I mean... There was uneven character stuff with that too. It was so many seasons. And it's interesting to think back to that now. Like that was a network show. There were 22 episodes a season and it went for seven seasons. Bonkers. Bonkers. It's just like that. It's just so different from how TV operates now. And it became dependent on like the new mystery revealed at the end of, you know, fall sweeps or whatever. And they just never resolved like anything. And that is because that was what the network was demanding, was there needed to be a new twist. And that the show just kept going and going and going because it was a huge ratings hit. It was a situation where the people in charge of the show had an incredibly limited amount of power compared to TV showrunners of like prestige, in quotes, you know, television now, right? And so the feeling that I had in the first couple episodes of this, we'll see if I am rewarded, was such a greater sense of just like comfort and confidence in what was happening because it felt to me like the people making the show had complete control over the material and were going somewhere and that they knew what they were doing. I mean, it seems radically different to what's happening with Westworld, which very much is in the lost model and yeah. had an entertaining but flawed first season. And I watched like the first episode of season two and I was just like, oh, Jesus Christ just preserve me <laughs> um yeah and that is really kind of gone gone that way but um I think like my concern for the final two or not even my concern my like question for the final two episodes uh as we move into that is like not really a specific like oh I hope this doesn't happen um so much as like a thematic issue I've had for the past few episodes and I'm actually going to be writing about soon and that's kind of the fact that this story, as you said, is like very much to do with like, oh, we've done like this new shocking revelation and there's a lot of like very, very complicated background world building and sort of conspiracy theories. And 
my concern is that it is so into the idea of being really complicated, which as far as I know is very much Damon Lindelof's MO, that it's going to do a story which is like very complicated, has a really narratively satisfying conclusion that everyone's going to have a lot of fun analysing. And like clearly part of the appeal of this show is that it makes you feel smart because like you can analyse it in certain ways or like pick up on easter eggs or whatever and you're like oh wasn't that satisfying to like work out in my brain which i completely understand the appeal of that but kind of we have a story here where it's like oh the the more you complicate the idea of like oh there's this like conspiracy behind structural racism the more you're kind of implying that it requires some kind of genius mastermind situation and making something overcomplicated that is more to do with just like banal human shittiness And that is like in some ways where I think it's currently going, especially because we've now got this backstory where Adrian Veidt like orchestrated the new presidency. Obviously kind of the whole point of the original comic is that like we don't really know whether what he did actually helped at all. You just killed three million people and everyone sort of decided the best way to digest that event is to say it's made the world better because the Cold War is over. But obviously in real world, the Cold War did end and that kind of thing. So it's like, I think there was going to be an ambiguity to the idea of like Adrian Veidt creating this presidency, of course. But I'm I'm dubious about the idea that this show so far is essentially deciding that really overly elaborate conspiracy theories are real. Because in real life, all of those conspiracy theories are things like Jade Helm or Pizzagate. And it's like, I'd prefer not to pretend that that shit's like a real thing and acknowledge the idea that it's like oh there's like a super genius who's like manipulating everything behind the scenes as opposed to just like capitalism yes i see your point although i think the conclusion of a elaborate superhero plot being like well capitalism is bad as opposed to a bad guy is sadly not where we are at the moment no i know that but it's like just in terms of like you are intentionally creating an entire show where it's, you know, it's just like what I've said, rather than if you are tackling a story that has got like really hard-hitting real themes, there is an extent to which I would prefer it not to create the illusion that evil is created by a really complicated, loyal, secretive group of super genius like Illuminati people and can only be defeated by similarly brilliant heroes. Yes, that's fair. I guess it just doesn't bother me very much yeah this is just something i obsess about because i watched a lot of crime tv at a formative age and <laughs> <laughs> i'm like no. i mean it just does all sort of depend on the execution yeah and how it resolves at the moment it's not really bothering me hugely yeah oh so- before we finish who's your favorite character i mean the character who sort of most emotionally moved me was looking glass in that one episode about him, the Tim Blake Nelson character, which I hate because he's like the one white guy. (laughs) And I was like, God damn it. But I think it's because he is the most normal person. Yeah. That it was like, oh, and Tim Blake Nelson is also like so astounding. That really profoundly impacted me. Whereas like, I think Angela is really, really compelling. I love Regina King. So I think she's fantastic. But the whole point of her is that she is competent. I really like, yeah, I really like Regina King, but like the character, I think now we've got to episode seven, I just don't really understand her anymore. And obviously that's probably going to clear up in episode eight, which I'm going to watch soon. But like, 
yeah, this most recent episode was like, oh, she's her husband is secretly Doctor Manhattan, and like he they fell in love, and then he locked away his memories and became this completely new guy. And I'm like, so you fell in love with one guy and then married another guy with a different personality and memories, and you've had a really normal life together and lied to him the whole time. Like it was very hard for me to unpack what the hell the emotional journey was behind that, but we'll see what they say next week. I mean, that's like the very last plot twist of that episode. Yeah. And I was just sort of like, great, cool. <laughs> like, bring it on. Um, and I obviously haven't read the comics, so I don't know the specific details of all the Dr. Manhattan stuff. Yeah. But I mean, the one you know. thing that I found I really liked about that is the fact that like the whole, the whole idea of Dr. Manhattan is the further it goes on, the less human he becomes until he's just this sort of like, you know, incredibly detached figure with godlike powers, but no real ability to engage with people emotionally. But even once he's sort of like ascending into this state, he like dumps his old girlfriend so he can date like a 17 year old girl. And it's then like 30 years later, he like does the same thing. So like he, this weird alien blue god, meets this presumably quite young woman played by Regina King and then falls in love with her. And it's like, okay, all right. Um, but also the fact that like, Clearly he has different personality and memories and she marries him and then they like adopt kids together. I was just like, well, I cannot. There's sure. like, uh, the there was someone, some recap was sort of pointing out the dropped hints throughout the show that you can look back on and be like, oh, of course. The There's a scene with the kids where they're asking about death and he's just like, nothing happens after you die. You're just yeah. matter. Yeah, I remembered that too. <laughs> I remember at the time being like, all right, harsh. I, but... I love that scene because I was just like, this is so weird. Like, <laughs> So clearly it's not that he's completely like a different person. Yeah. It's just that he's more normal, right? I mean, that character bears no resemblance to any element of Dr. Manhattan in the comics. I mean, but I assume that they're trying to... Yeah, like, they've seeded in some stuff. Yeah. And she also says that it was his idea. Yeah. So, you know, whatever. But I don't find, I mean, I her character has been pretty coherent throughout, I think. Especially now that we know that she had this, like, horrific thing happen to her as a child. She watched her parents get murdered and has wasn't lived in an orphanage. She's clearly very angry. She's isolated. It's like, yeah, you're going to get attached to this like weirdo man. <laughs> and that, I mean, it just doesn't seem like a, of, of all the people who would get like caught up in that, this doesn't seem like a crazy thing. Someone who literally has no one else. Right. And then she's living this double life anyway, as this member of the police force, like it, it all kind of syncs up to me. Um, and I think the performance is fantastic. So Yeah. I don't um, think it's it's nuts. My fave is Will Reeves. And I think yes. even was after I yeah, even was maybe before I watched six the episode six, because like I obviously I think like everyone has seen Louis Gossett Jr. in something, because he's been on TV since the nineteen fifties, I discovered when I Googled him. Um but like I'd never have seen him in like a particularly interesting role. And he is just like so fucking good in this show. <laughs> like you can just tell it's like this is a man who has got fifty years of uh, acting experience and he's great and he is really funny. I I just love his performance as like a really weird, slightly mean old man with an interesting history. Um, yeah, he's love really him. good. Love him. He's my MVP of the show. The young actor who plays him in that flashback episode is really wonderful. Yeah, also. he's really good too. He was on The Leftovers. 
and he's he's really good. What a great call to receive. Like, <laughs> hey, wanna be the main character in the best TV episode of 2019? Sure. I was also, just before we wrap up, I was fascinated in one of those interviews with Cora Jefferson, like the writer of episode six. He said that he like intentionally chose not to know what happens at the end of the show. So he went in, he wrote episode six, and then left the writer's room to go and like work on The Good Place or something, and doesn't know what happens in the finale of the show. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even understand how that is possible, logistically. I mean, I guess they must have written it all really rigidly chronologically. Because they right. were doing it in like a writer's room context. But he literally was like, yeah, after I was done with my, my episode, I left. I decided I prefer to watch it as a viewer. So they're just going to like, I told people not to tell me what happens. <laughs> like, how do you break story without, do, I, I, this is mystifying to me. Somehow they managed to swing this? Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I hope he enjoys the finale, I guess. <laughs> Along with the rest of us. Um, yeah, well, people should obviously uh, keep track of your recaps for the last couple of episodes. If for some reason you have made it this far and have not watched the show, we obviously think you should go back and do so. Next week, we will be watching The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is having its 20th anniversary, one of the great movies of 1999. Uh, I haven't seen this in at least 10 years, I think. I haven't seen it. I believe there's someone called Mr. Ripley in it. It is. Oh my God, Gav. It's so good. I it's saw five so minutes of this on an adult's TV when I was about 10 and then they very quickly switched it off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful film. Great Matt Damon performance from his peak when he was, you know, a beautiful youth playing a very weird person, which is a nice sort of twist for him. Uh, peak Jude Law also um i mean the young pope is his true peak, yeah i was about to say is... he did he's done two roles in his life he's done the talented mr ripley then he went on a break for 20 years and then he did <laughs> he did yeah. the, the young pope Th- those really were the, the two in the middle the he, he played a sex robot in ai and i believe right. he's never worked in anything else right <laughs> um and uh gwyneth paltrow is also in this there's a lot of i think italian vistas uh, it's based on a Patricia Highsmith novel who also wrote the novel that uh, Carol was based on, although this is tonally very different. I was about to say, I don't feel like this film is going to be like Carol. <laughs> no, nope, not at all. But she wrote lots of queer pulpy type novels in the mid 20th century. But uh, yeah, it's great. Really, really great film. So check that out before we discuss it next week. And... In the meantime, Gavia, where can our readers find you and your work online? Yeah, come over and read my extensive Watchmen analyses and interviews with the costume designer at The Daily Dot and find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.